This is totally inappropriate, but on the day after Alabama crushes the Arkansas Razorbacks, Matt chooses to sing a song with the Crimson Tide flowing in it. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word, which is so good for us. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning from Psalm 77 how to respond when it seems that it's not working. It's not working to call on you. It's not working to remember what you've done. Lord, teach us. Teach us how to persevere. Teach us how to fix our hearts completely on you. And Lord, we pray that just as it worked for Asaph, it would work for us. We ask this for the glory of your great name. Amen. <clears throat> I would invite you to open this morning to Psalm 77. And as you turn there, I want to relate a, a tragic um, report that we received this week of a, uh, a pastor's wife here in Louisville who died in her sleep this past week. Some of you, some of you know this lady. Um, she was involved with the CC campus that, that Jen Birch leads. And as I understand it, um, her husband is a pastor at a sister church here in Louisville. And together, I think, I think this lady's in her early 30s, and together they had six children, ages eight down to one. And um, it's unimaginable to me that, that this poor man would wake up uh, to find that his wife had passed in the night. I don't know that you're going to face that, but we're all going to face horrific things in this life. We're all going to face things that are going to prompt us to respond the way the psalmist does here in Psalm 77. And what I want to, what I want to do as we approach Psalm 77 is first sort of try to give you the outline in the way that we might, like if we were coming to a new city and, and maybe um, one of us had been to that city before and could sort of tell us where the roads were and give us a sort of uh, lay of the land, so to speak, so that we know what, what we're going to see and, and we can establish some landmarks to know how to look at this city and how to find our way around in it. In the same way, I want to briefly overview this psalm and then come back and walk through it together. So what we have in Psalm 77 verses 1 through 15, are five sets of three-verse units. And you can see at the end of verse 3, there's a selah. That sort of marks off the first three verses as a unit. And then notice how at the end of verse 3, he says, when I meditate, my spirit faints. He's going to say something very, very similar at the end of verse 6, where he says, let me meditate in my heart, then my spirit made a diligent search. So the meditate and my spirit are repeated in verse 6 from verse 3, and that also sort of marks off verses 4 through 6 as a unit. And then in verses 7 through 8, uh, I'm sorry, seven at the end of verse 9, there's a selah. And then look at the end of verse 12. He says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So that word meditate recurs again in verse 12. 
And then in verses 13 through 15, you have the final three-verse unit, and it's marked by the word selah at the end of it. So uh, th- these are some of the things that mark these off. Notice also how the beginning of each one of these units uh, changes what, what's going on. Look at verse 1, I cry aloud to God. And then verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. And verse 7, verses 7 through 9 is unique here. Because in these verses, he's asking questions. So he's not, he's not talking about himself. He's not addressing the Lord. He's asking, will the Lord spurn forever? And then verse 10, then I said, and then verse 13, your way, O God. So the beginning of each one of these three-verse units uh, changes in terms of uh, how, the, how he's speaking, either in the first person or the second person or asking a question. And then the end of each of these three-verse units is marked for us. And, um, and we'll say more about those as we walk through them individually, but it changes at the end. At the end of the psalm, in, in verses 16 through 20, he doesn't speak anymore in the first person. And he's not reusing any of this language that we've seen of, I meditate, or my spirit searches. And he doesn't have any selahs. So there's a totally different arrangement at the end of, of this psalm. Um, so, so what's going on here at the end of Psalm 77? Well, look at, look at, first look at verse 15, because verse 15 is going to serve as sort of like a hinge where it, it, it ends that last set of, of three verses, and it also opens this last section. So he says in verse 15, You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And now look at verse 20. He says, you led your people. Notice how these two are similar. You redeemed your people. You led your people. It's very similar in structure. And then in the same way that verse 15 has two names at the end, Jacob and Joseph, verse 20 has two names at the end, Moses and Aaron. So verses 15 and 20 are sort of bracketing uh, this final unit of the psalm. And then look at verse 16 and just see the word waters that occurs twice there. Water again in verse 17. And then... In verse uh, 17, you've got the word thunder. Verse 18, you've got the word thunder. And then in verse 19, again, you've got waters. So we'll come back to this, but basically what you've got is waters, thunder, waters, and then these two framing verses at the end of the psalm. And something magnificent happens in this psalm. And and it's, it's, it's really so kind of God to give us a text like this. Because I suspect that that you have experienced what this psalmist is dealing with. Look at at verse 1. Actually, before we get into verse 1, let me draw your attention to the superscription. It says, to the choir master, according to Jaduthun, a psalm of Asaph. And um, I think it's helpful to make this personal. So I just want to draw your attention to 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30, where we read that Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So in other words, 2 Chronicles 29, 30 is saying they used the words of Asaph in worship. Do you hear what that verse is doing for us? It's telling us that 
that they used the words of David. Those are probably the Psalms of David. And they used the words of this guy Asaph in worship. And that's telling us, I think, that these Psalms that are attributed to Asaph were actually written by this guy, Asaph. So, so it's helpful to think about a person, a guy named Asaph. And he's struggling. Look at what he says here in verse 1. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God. So he repeats this, I think for, for emphasis. He's crying aloud to the Lord. And then he says confidently, and he will hear me. So this is, this is interesting. There's a dynamic at work here where on the one hand, he's confident that he's going to be heard. But on the other hand, his confidence hasn't taken the sting out of the pain that he feels. So he's going he's gonna to talk about how, how difficult this is that he's, that he's dealing with. Look at verse 2. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord, which is instructive in itself, isn't it? This guy is dealing with some unspecified problem. He doesn't spell out what the circumstances are. He doesn't tell us what it is that he is yearning for, that he's seeking the Lord in response to. But it's something, and it's serious. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. This is one of several indications that I think uh, point to the, the way that this, this difficulty that this guy is dealing with kept him up all night long. Look at verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. Verse 6. I said, let me remember my song in the night. So, you know, he doesn't spell out for us. My young wife just died and left me with our six children, all under the age of 10. He, he doesn't tell us what's going on. He also doesn't specify, I'm yearning for the kingdom of God, but it might be something like that. He might be looking at the awful state of the world, so much ugliness, and comparing it with the beauty of what's laid out in Psalm 72, and thinking, Lord, when are you going to make that happen? When are you going to bring to pass everything that David prayed for in Psalm 72? He might be responding. To, we don't know what's going on with him. But these references to in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. And then look at the end of verse 2 there. My soul refuses to be comforted. And I wonder if you can identify with this. I suspect you can. Because we all, we all have times when maybe somebody encourages us, why don't you seek the Lord? And our response is, because I don't want to seek the Lord. Or maybe something, maybe the Lord brings a Bible verse to mind. And our response is, I don't need that. That is not going to help me right now. Or maybe you're feeling, okay, Lord, I want the scriptures. And it's just not helping me. This is not going anywhere. We are all going to face circumstances like this. Look at verse 3. I think what he's saying in verse 3, when he says, When I remember God, I moan. I meditate. My spirit faints. I think what he's indicating here is something like, Okay, Lord, the world's a mess. And, and just in, in terms of the flow of thought in these psalms, um, in Psalm 72... 
David prays for this magnificent, glorious realization of everything that God has promised. The renewal of creation, it's going to be awesome. And then in Psalm 73, the psalmist is sort of dealing with reality. Things are not that way. And then Psalm 74, there's this attack on the temple. And so it's really not that way. And then Psalm 75 and 76, they talk about this future judgment that God is going to bring on the wicked. And, and the implication is, after that judgment, then things will be like they were, like what David prayed back in Psalm 72. And then in Psalm 77, it's kind of like Psalm 74. In fact, there are a number of uh, points of contact in Psalm 77 with Psalm 74, where it's as though the psalmist is saying, why is it still not that way? How long is it going to be? And I, I think that in verse 3 when he says, when I remember God, it's like he's saying, Lord, when I think about how powerful you are and how good you are and how true your word is, and then I look at the world or I look at my circumstances, it just makes it worse. Because you can obviously deal with this. Why won't you? When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. So he sort of closes off that first unit. Where he's, he's clearly, he's seeking the Lord in verse 2. And he's remembering, and he's meditating, and he's moaning. And he gives us insight in verse 4 into this further. He says, you hold my eyelids open. It's like he's blaming the Lord for making it where he can't go to sleep. You're keeping me awake. I'm agonized over this. I'm so troubled, verse 4, that I cannot speak. He's distraught. And with verse 2 where he says, my soul refuses to be comforted, he is dis consolate, unconsoled, sleepless. And then, verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. So this guy, I think this guy is trying to, he's trying to pursue the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. And when he says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago, I think he's probably starting to think about what God did at creation, what God did at the Exodus, the, the mighty victories in Israel's past. And again, it, it, it's like he's trying to do right. Verse 6, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Probably he's trying to, to get himself to sing the psalms. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Okay, so, so he's trying to respond well to this period of difficulty. And it leads him. To, to question in Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. And the, the issue in question here, look at what he asks in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever? Now, th this word spurn is a word that is used in places when the Bible describes the Lord spurning his people because of their disobedience. So, so I think this psalmist is operating within a sort of faithful boundary here. In other words, he's not indicting God for being unfair. He's not indicting God for being unjust or uncaring. What he's doing is he's recognizing we were in covenant with God. We broke that covenant. He has spurned us. Is that going to last forever? 
Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has, look at verse 8. This is a shocking question. I, I, I don't know if, you've, if, you've, if this verse has jumped out at you before. Has his steadfast love, chesed, this is what the Lord said of himself. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in chesed. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? You hear what he's asking? Is he altogether done with us? And in a sense, what he's asking is, does this mean that God's character toward us, what God revealed of himself and the way that he would conduct himself, has all that changed? Is he going to reject us forever? Is he never again going to look favorably upon our sacrifices? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Look at the rest of verse 8. Are his promises at an end for all time? God, you made these promises. Does this mean that they are never going to be kept? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Has God's just indignation at Israel's sin reached the place where he has decided, like he says he's free to do in Jeremiah, You know, Jeremiah 18, he says, look, if I decree good for a city and they turn and do evil, I can withdraw from the good I plan to do and do evil against them. If I declare evil concerning a city and they do good, they repent, well, then I can repent, he says, of the disaster that I plan to do to them and do good to them. And I think the psalmist is saying, is this what's going on here, Lord? And that brings us to verse 10 where the ESV renders this, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And in this case, I think the footnote actually is a better representation of what the text says. In fact, as, as I looked into this, um, I, I, I could not find... You know, this, if, you, if you look at the footnote, if you're looking at the ESV like I am... There's a footnote on verse 10, and down in the lower margin it says, This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Well, I would rather have what's in verse 10 in the, in the text, wouldn't you? Uh, then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. That's easier for me to understand than this is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. But number one, I couldn't find a justification for the translation that's in Psalm 73.10. And if somebody smarter than me can look at the text and maybe look into the uh, stuff and find out where they're getting that, I would welcome you to explain that to me. So I think what's in the lower margin is actually what the text says, number one. And number two, I think what's in the lower margin actually fits the psalm better. Okay, so think about what he's saying. This is my grief, that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Lord, you promised good for us. Your hand was for us when you reached out your mighty hand and you delivered us at the exodus from Egypt. But now, your hand is against us and you've brought judgment upon us. And that's causing me grief. So I think that's what he's, what he's saying. I'm grieved because the hand that was for us at the exodus is now against us. And you're destroying us. But then look at verse 11. This doesn't cause him to give up. 
And let me, let me here, here's a point of application for you. When it feels like it's not working, when you're trying to do what this psalmist is doing, this psalmist is dealing with something, he doesn't like his circumstances. We don't know what they are. They could be, he, he could be merely responding to uh, the national situation, or there could be some personal tragedy that he's enduring, or some combination, you know? It could be, I'm just totally making this up out of nowhere, okay? It could be that this guy Asaph had a wife who was carried off captive when the temple was attacked, as Psalm 74 describes. Or maybe she was killed, or maybe something hor We don't know what happened to Asaph. But what I'm saying is there's not necessarily a disjunction between disaster for the nation and disaster for this guy personally. Those two things are bound up together. And so he's trying to deal with all this sorrow. He's trying to deal with the disconnect between what the Bible says about the way things are going to be in Psalm 72 and then the way he sees the world is. And that's a disconnect we're all going to face. You know, you read the New Testament, there's all this great stuff about how we're going to conquer our sin and we're going to be victorious, and then we just keep stumbling and we keep wallowing. And I think you could be tempted to, I think you ought to go through what this guy is going through, and you ought to persevere like he perseveres. Do you see what he's doing here? He's not giving up. He's not saying, okay, the Bible's not working for me, so I'm putting it aside, and I'm going to go worship Baal. Or, the Bible's not working for me, so I might as well just give myself to trying to make as much money as I possibly can. Or, God is obviously not helping me, so I'm going to go hang out with my buddies and try to grow in influence in the community and, and be more influential in that way. He, he's not resorting to some kind of sinful comfort or some sort of other source of help. He's persevering with the Lord. Look at verse 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And here's where we, we come up to the change for the psalmist. Because there's a significant change that happens as we move from verse 12 into verse 13, which is sort of the beginning of the end of the psalm. To this point, this psalm has been pervaded by the first person singular pronoun. I, 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 I. The only places he has not started off a statement with I, look at verse 4, you hold my eyelids open, which is still sort of about him. You're keeping me awake. I can't get any sleep. And then in verses 7 through 9, when he asks these, these searing questions, everywhere else it's first person singular, me, I. That's the focus. But look at how this changes in verse 13. Your way, O God is holy. You see what happens there? He stops talking about himself. And he starts talking about God. And he stops searching his own heart. You know, earlier in the psalm, he, he had said in verse 6, let me meditate in my heart. He stops, he, he just leaves off with that. Stops focusing on himself. Starts focusing on the Lord stops talking about himself, starts talking about the Lord. And that's where the change comes. That's where 
Asaph actually begins to worship. And that's what happens here. When Asaph says there in verse 13, Your way, O God, is holy. This is implicitly saying, and we're not. He's confessing, your way, O God, is holy. So whatever's happened to me, you were just. You were, you've not been unfair to me. You have not been unholy in your conduct toward me. Your way, O God, is holy. And the contemplation on God's holiness leads him to worship. Look what he says next. What God is great like our God. You see the logical connection between those two things? Your way, O God, is holy. You never do what is unjust. You never engage in anything sinful. You are all, and there is no one else like you. That's the logic there. Your way is holy. What God is great like our God? It's the, it's the knowledge of God's utter purity, his absolute devotion to his own character, which separates him from everything else. Because he's holy, there is no other deity, no other power, no other idol that is great like he is. And, and he's talking about the wonders in a new way in verse 14. Earlier in the psalm, I remember Denny telling me about this friend that he had in college who became a Christian and it was like he would sit in this chair and grip the sides of his chair. I can't go out there and sin. You know, the guy, what he really wants in his heart is to go sin. And he's trying to hold himself back from it. This psalmist, Asaph, what he wants is he wants to get to a place where, where the Lord meets his need. And he can't get there until he stops focusing on himself and he starts focusing on the Lord. He stops talking about himself, starts talking about the Lord. And so instead of all this insistence, I mean, four times in this psalm, verse 3, when I remember God, verse 6, let me remember my song, verse 11, I will remember, and then again in verse 11, yes, I will remember. And in the middle of all that, verse 8, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, has God forgotten? I'm trying to remember here. Has he forgotten? But now it's altogether different. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. God's work at the exodus from Egypt was so impressive that the Canaanites heard the news. And not just, not just like the important Canaanites who were getting the intelligent briefings, a prostitute living in the wall of Jericho had the full story so that when the spies come, she tells them exactly what their God has done. To e we heard about your God and what he did to Egypt. So I think he's talking about the exodus here. You have made known your might among the peoples. And then verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people. The exodus from Egypt. The children of Jacob and Joseph. Jacob, remember, is the guy who got his name changed to Israel. Joseph was his beloved son, the guy with the coat of many colors, um, who, who was the beloved son down there in Egypt. And, and so those two sort of stand for the whole nation. You redeemed your people. He seems to be talking about the exodus from Egypt. Selah. And then he just continues in worship here. And having talked about the exodus in verse 20, 
What do you think he's talking about in verse 16 when he says, when the waters saw you, O God? When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Well, what happens right after they come out of Egypt? They get to the shore of the Red Sea, don't they? And look at how the psalmist, he playfully develops this. He playfully and poetically develops what happened when Israel got to the shore of the Red Sea. I mean, if you go back and you read Exodus 14, they were panicked. They were terrified because here comes the army of Pharaoh. And, and the Lord told Moses, reach out your staff over the sea. And Moses obeyed, and the Lord potter, parts the water. And, and he potters the water. He parts the water. And, and the psalmist says, when the water saw you, oh God. I mean, imagine this. God striding out at the head of the hosts of, of Israel, and they get to the Red Sea, and the waters, being personified here, they see the almighty creator of the universe, and they flee from before him. They get out of his way. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep, that's a word that's used to describe, you know, the depths of the of the, the deep trembled. Can you imagine the the, the depths of the ocean quivering before the divine warrior leading his hosts. So we got Exodus in verse 15, Red Sea in verse 16. Where did they go after they passed through the Red Sea? They went to Mount Sinai, didn't they? And out Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 recounts how the Lord came down on the top of the mountain. And the earth is shaking and the darkness is thickening, and lightnings are flashing, and out of the midst of the fire on the top of the mountain, Yahweh spoke the ten words. God spoke the ten commandments to Israel. And I think that's what he's describing here in verse 17 and 18. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Those are probably references to lightning, God's arrows flashing Verse 18, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings shone up the world. They, they, shot, they caused the world to shine. The earth trembled and shook. So he's celebrating the way that God met Israel to give them the covenant. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. This, this is probably another uh, reference to the Red Sea, and it probably is after Sinai because the guy wants to achieve a chiastic structure of these final verses. So, it, you know, he goes um, Exodus, um, Red Sea, Sinai, Red Sea, and now wilderness, verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So you brought us through the wilderness. Now, why is he talking about these things, and how is this helping him? Asaph knows that what God did in the past is what God is going to do in the future. That's why I, in your bulletin, I put the title here for verses 15 through 20, the forward-pointing past. Because what you have there is an Exodus redemption at the Passover, followed by a Red Sea crossing, followed by a giving of the law at Sinai, followed by a provision for the people in the wilderness as they make their way to the land of promise. And Asaph seems to understand at some level that that pattern of events from Israel's history, he can take that and project it into the future. And when 
that typological pattern from the past is fulfilled in the future, then everything prayed for in Psalm 72 is going to be realized. And as the book of Revelation says, and as Isaiah says, every tear is going to be wiped away. And the New Testament claims, when you, when you read uh, the New Testament, it presents the death of Jesus as the death, the fulfillment of the death of the Passover lamb. So that what Christ accomplished through his, his first coming is presented as a fulfillment of the Exodus pattern. It's, it's, it's a new Exodus. And then uh, Paul speaks as though there's this thing, this law of Christ that God has given to his people in fulfillment of the law of Moses. So you've got a new Exodus. And Paul also speaks of the, the Red Sea as sort of an anticipation or a typological prefiguration of baptism. You know, he says that our fathers were all baptized in the cloud and in the sea. They were baptized into Moses. And, and I think the idea is those were waters of judgment that, that killed the Egyptians and Israel was preserved through them. And that's what happens when we're baptized. Those are waters of judgment, but because of what Christ did for us, we pass through them and we live because of Jesus because he was submerged in those waters of judgment. And then um, the, this new covenant is also inaugurated through what Christ has done. And we are now, we're now pilgrimaging through the wilderness, sojourning as we make our way to a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and new earth, which are the fulfillment of the land of promise. That's why all this is helping Asaph. That's how he gets better. The past points forward to the future, and he begins to worship the Lord. So I've already suggested one point of application. Don't give up. Persevere. It may take a while. It takes 15 verses, or maybe, you know, 12 or so verses for Asaph, before, as he's trying to ponder and trying to meditate and trying to seek the Lord, now he finally breaks through and he perceives God's holiness and he begins to worship. Don't give up. Persevere. Second, don't just examine your own heart. I mean, we need to do some of this. But if we stay there, it's only going to be discouraging. <laughs> because our hearts are awful. So don't just do that. Lift your gaze to the Lord. Thirdly, live in confidence. Live in confidence. Everything that Asaph talks about here, I think the reason he rehearses Exodus, Red Sea, Sinai, and wilderness is because he's expecting a fulfillment of these things. And in Christ, they are fulfilled. And we are living in the fulfillment of these things. So what this does is it frees us to take risks. It frees us to go into dangerous places to preach the gospel. It frees us to go live in the dirt to try to take the gospel to a new tribe. It frees us to go to a bad part of town because we don't live for this life. It also frees us to do the little things in ordinary life, okay? Because these things are true, you know, I know that there are things done at this church that, are, that in the world's eyes don't seem significant. There are people that I praise God for that wash dishes Sunday after Sunday. There are people that sweep the floors Sunday after Sunday. 
and none of this is glamorous, there are people who work in the nursery Sunday after Sunday. And you know what's going to happen when you work in the nursery? The kids are going to fuss. That's what's going to happen. They're going to fuss, and you're going to try to make them feel better, and they're going to keep fussing. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what you can expect. And, and we need you to do it. We need you to lay your life down. And I submit to you that those unglamorous ways of serving Christ are as significant. And it's true of our homes as well. Stuff happens in the home all the time that I don't want to have to deal with. Praise God, I've got a loving wife who can deal with some things that I don't like to deal with. I'm not going to describe for you what they are. But things happen, you know. Stuff has to be cleaned up. People are being potty trained, you know. You get the idea. Christ-likeness is applicable there, too. And we bring these great truths to bear because we're seeking the city that is to come, the one with foundations. We give our lives away in unglamorous ways and in big ways. We, we do this because we've worshipped the God who is holy, the one who is worthy of all our praise. Let's pray together. Father, we, we feel what Paul said when he told those churches that he had planted that he was entrusting them to the word of God, which was able to save their souls. Lord, we, we thank you for this word that, to which we've been entrusted. And we thank you that it's your truth and that it teaches us about every aspect of life. Father, I pray that if there are people here this morning that, that have hearts that don't thrill to these things, I pray that you'd give them new hearts. I pray that you would prick them and prod them and make them want to understand what it is this text is describing. And I pray, Lord, that you would show them the glory of Christ and show them how they can have their sins forgiven and show them how they can serve a king who will never let them down. And Father, for the rest of us, we pray that in big things and in small things, you would make us like Jesus. We ask it for his glory, for the good of our souls, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.